Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. This is Talk Radio. Good morning, it's Monday the 17th of February. You're listening to Mike, uh, Breakfast with Mike Graham, standing in for Julia Hartley Brewer right here on Talk Radio. Coming up, uh, it's been a very sad weekend in the news. TV presenter Caroline Flack took her own life age 40 and there's been a huge outpouring of love for her. But there are so many people trying to point the finger of blame at the media, at ITV, at the legal system, at social media, even at the police. Why are we trying to find someone to blame for this tragic news? Uh, I'll speak to psychologists and people who knew Caroline Flack well. Also, I'll talk about the plans for number 10 to scrap the BBC licence fee in favour of a subscription model and Britain's on board the quarantine Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan are accusing the government of forgetting about them. I'll find out if we should still be worried about the coronavirus. Plus John Hammond from Weather Trending will join me after a weekend of wind, rain and flooding courtesy of Storm Dennis. It's five minutes past seven in the morning. It is Monday and you're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. This is Talk Radio. And we are also live streaming this show on YouTube, so I am delighted to tell you that for the first time on Breakfast, you'll be able to watch it uh, as well as listening to it. I'm in the company this morning of Neil Wallace, former tabloid editor, media commentator as well, and Eric McElroy, American commentator and comedian. Morning to both of you. Morning. Um, let's uh, welcome now Joe Hemmings, behavioural psychologist, relationship expert, uh, a woman I speak to very often on my show, uh, which starts at 10. I'm sorry, Joe, that you've had to get up at 7 o'clock this morning to talk to me. It's all right, I forgive you. I know you've forgiven me, that's very kind of you. An awful lot of the uh, the papers this morning still uh, with pages and pages and pages of coverage uh, of the terrible yeah. story about Caroline Flack. I mean, I've been asking um, this morning the guys here, but also uh, the people listening to the show, there seems to be a sense at the moment that we need to find someone to blame for this, which, which I find a bit unfortunate, really, because I think, in the end, sometimes terrible things do happen and it's not always somebody's fault. No, but we have to make some sense of what happened. It's important for people to... I mean, that's why everyone, you know, from the press to social media or whatever, been f being found accountable, because we have to make some sense of what seems a completely extraordinary and awful, tragic, um, killing, you know, suicide of a young girl. And actually, in truth, I think all of these parts from ITV to the press to social media to the CPS, they're all culpable in some way because, you know, it's part, not individually, but it's part of obviously a bigger and more threatening um, picture that, picked, uh, that, you know, Caroline Flack had in her mind. Uh, uh, which ultimately caused her to take her own life. Yeah. I mean, there are those, of course, who will say that the whole um, sort of culture that we've created around reality TV is not entirely healthy for people, particularly those people who might be a bit mentally vulnerable. Well, I think to a degree that's true, but of course Caroline wasn't a contestant, she was a presenter, which puts it, and I think, you know, the fact uh, she presented Love Island is just a very sad coincidence. Um, but I do think what it does bring into play is, you know, people in the public eye that we've always assumed where we know that the contestants are vulnerable and there's work being done to make sure uh, they have support. For people who present programmes, there is the implicit assumption, and I think that's where our, such our shock came from, that they will be able to cope, mm. that they have, you know, those coping mechanisms that sort of get 
what the press or social media are throwing at them. In this case, clearly not. And that's, I think, where we need to look. Who's supporting those people? I mean, as far as the kind of... and and Nobody knows for sure what was in uh, in Caroline's mind. Nobody knows for sure what might have affected her decision. And nobody really understands any of that, and we probably never will. But, you know, the one thing that we can say that's new in this this whole conversation, there's always been press intrusion, there's always been television companies that made shows that might be termed exploitative. What is new, I think, in all of this is, is the way that ordinary people can get a Twitter account or an Instagram account yeah. uh, or a Facebook account and just hurl horrible barbs, nasty abuse and, and just disgraceful words at people they don't even know. I agree, and I think there's sort of two points going on there. One is that when they see the press go on the attack, then they see it sort of greenlit for them to be able to do the same thing because if the press is doing it, why shouldn't they? And I'm not saying the press shouldn't cover these kind of stories. They should, but they should do them, particularly with far less salacious, cruel headlines. There needs to be a more empathetic way of covering these stories that aren't on the attack. And secondly, as Twitter... You know, it drives the good people off Twitter. When you see this sort of thing, people think, oh, do you know what? I don't want to be on the social platform anymore. Uh, it's, all, it's all angry people. It's all people being abusive. Um, and so what happens is you get this kind of polarized uh, Twitterati that are literally, you know, it's the cruel ones that sort of yeah. stand head and shoulders above everybody else because the good guys don't like it anymore. But is it part of the problem as well, though, um, Joe, that they're basically much of the abuse comes from people who are anonymous, uh, who don't have um, proper accounts, who are not properly policed and who basically could do whatever they like, safe in the knowledge that nobody will ever know who they are. Yes, I think a great deal of it is that. I mean, it happened to me recently. I actually reported somebody and there were three or four really unpleasant tweets. Mm. Chris came back to me and said, we haven't found any hate in there. So they carried on. So oh, yeah. Well, the tw- I mean, the Twitter rules for, for banning people are quite bizarre. I mean, I've had death yeah. threats. I've had people threatening to shoot me, people telling me there's a bullet with my name on it. And apparently that doesn't violate the Twitter rules. Yeah, so I think the Twitter rules need some uh, fairly urgent review. I don't know if that's just the rules like. for me, by the way. I don't know. Well... <laughs> no, it's wrong for every, I mean, it, it's horrible when it happens to you. And it, it is. It gathers pace. It has a ripple effect. Yeah. Other people join in the bundle and then suddenly you've just... There's a tsunami of, of vileness heading in your direction. And I don't understand in their rules why they can't see that cumulative effect, if you like. It's not individuals. It's just them all piggybacking on each other for attention. Mm. How that is unacceptable. And do you see any way that this will change? Because clearly, you know, people will go into their kind of... Uh, go back into their shells, perhaps, to some extent, when something like this happens, because even even the really horrible people know that it's probably not a very good time to be horrible. But it doesn't ever change anything, does it? I mean, that worries me. Something else fundamental needs to, to change, because I think what happens is we've got this outpouring of people, people saying, be kind, um, and actually... I'm afraid the way our press and the way uh, Twitter works currently is not that we're kind. We don't, we don't want to see lots of jolly little kind tweets. It doesn't get our engagement and it doesn't make them thrive. They don't make money out of that if people aren't engaging with the tweets. So it's sort of encouraging the dark side of us implicitly to come out. And, I, and that's just so many shades of wrong. 
So something has to change. Yeah. You know, but I also, by the same, by the, the, by, that, and by, the same, by the same token, Joe, I would say that you have to be very careful as well, do you not, about saying to newspapers, well, you know, you can't be critical anymore because in the end there's a big difference between somebody writing a column which is critical of someone but done it in a way which is, which is what you might consider to be acceptable. You know, it starts to go down a dangerous road if you say, well, you can't be critical of anybody. Indeed, it totally does. So I think you can be critical. And, and, and what I really find the worst are the headlines, because that's what you see in huge capital letters screaming at you from the front of certain tabloids. And, you know, even if what they wrote, which I don't think at the moment is particularly uh, well written or empathetic, you don't see that. You just see this relentless flow of hideous headlines. And that, I think, needs to change. Report on it by all means, but just give it a bit of consideration for you splash nastiness on your front pages in that way. OK. Joe Hemmings, thank you very much indeed. Behavioural psychologist, relationship expert. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. I'm going to talk now uh, to Nazir Afzal, a former chief prosecutor, because a lot of the newspapers this morning uh, obviously covering uh, the very tragic news at the weekend that Caroline Flack took her own life. Many of them are saying that she feared a show trial. She was terrified, according to the Daily Mail, about a police body cam film of her. She had warned police officers that she would take her own life. There had apparently been some kind of a 999 crew visit to her home the day before she took her own life. Let's find out uh, from Nazir precisely what he makes of the claims that the police should have gone easy on her. Nazir, a very good morning, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I'm slightly uneasy about this whole idea of, of blaming various organisations, whether it be the media, whether it be whether it be the police, whether it be ITV. You know, I'm not sure that sometimes we shouldn't just absorb terrible news like this and understand that sometimes these things happen. Uh, I agree with you. Um, uh, the blame culture, it's understandable. That's what we're like as a society. We always want somebody uh, to, I don't know, be held responsible. But uh, I can only talk about the police and prosecution in this. I know from my experience of working with police officers and prosecutors for a quarter of a century that they take, firstly, domestic abuse very seriously. We have an epidemic in this country, three quarters of a million reports to mm. police, 75,000 prosecutions a year. Uh, but every single one of them is treated exactly the same way. They look at the evidence. And in this case, as you said, there was a complainant who made an allegation. There was a 999 call that was recorded. Uh, the officers attended with body-worn camera, and they captured the scene and what's, what's happening and who's saying what. There were interviews. There's medical evidence. Uh, and they took the view, as they would do with any other similar case, that this was a case worth putting before a court. Mm. They don't make the judgment. They just, put, just decided that there was enough for it to go before a court. Then, of course, you have the quite uncommon uh, situation where the complainant withdraws and says they don't, they don't want to support the prosecution. And in, that, in those circumstances, because it happens so frequently, they have a, a process and they apply that process. Is there enough evidence? And, and they decided clearly there was still. Uh, and uh, let the court decide. And, you know, I think there, there are issues around um, duty of care. Um, who is responsible for looking after Caroline? Well, I would suggest uh, that the defence lawyers would, you know, they are meant to make the prosecution aware of any vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they did or not. And additionally, uh, communication has to be done in a very sensitive way. So uh, those are things that I, I hope will come out during the next few days when people investigate it further. But uh, I don't think 
you can attach any blame to police and prosecutors mm. simply doing their job. I mean, is there any onus on the CPS or indeed on the police at any point during an investigation to see whether there is vulnerability or to see mm. whether an individual might not be um, quite strong enough uh, to face charges? I mean, I, I don't imagine yeah. there is. Um, they, they have actually policy in place uh, which says that you must look after um, the vulnerable people and mm. that means assess the vulnerability. But you've got to weigh that up against the seriousness of the crime. A lot of vulnerable people kill people, for example. Yes. Uh, and you wouldn't say they shouldn't be prosecuted with murder. So they have a balance to take. They decided in this case that the allegations were serious enough and the evidence was strong enough uh, that it outweighed any concerns they had about her vulnerability. But, you know, as I say, that's a, a judgment call based on what information they had. I don't know what information they had, but I assume that they had sufficient to be able to make that judgment. Yes. Um, and if you look at the numbers of people in domestic violence cases who decide for one reason or another they don't want to press charges mm. against their partner, yeah. um, I mean, there's many of those cases which, which the police view as um, sort of undue influence being exerted or possibly bullying being, uh, being going on. So there's no reason why, as some people have suggested, that that should have meant that they didn't press ahead. 100%. That we have a significant problem with that. For all the reasons you mentioned, and additional reasons, when men tend to men tend to withdraw their support for a prosecution because of shame, because mm. they somehow feel that they are, you know, they should, they've, they've brought it upon themselves. Yes. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons why they why they may not pursue the prosecution. But that's why we have an independent prosecution service to make that judgment on behalf of us, the public, and not just on behalf of the person who's made the complaint. Quite. And as far as the uh, delay in the court system, uh, just because of the sheer volume of cases and, and from yeah. what we've heard of the, the sort of the lack of resources, perhaps in some cases for the, for the legal system in general, some people have been critical of the length of time um, that it takes from the incident to the charge to the actual court appearance. Is that a fair criticism that, that sometimes the longer that goes on, the more sort of stressful it can become? You put you put it put put it better than I could. Absolutely right. Uh, it is a sh it's shameful actually the amount of time it takes, and that is resources. There are fewer courts, fewer judges, mm. fewer barristers, fewer prosecutors. That means that these cases do take longer than they should do. If they were dealt with in in days, if not weeks, uh, I think people would be able to see justice done, and they would also see that uh, the trauma can be managed in some way. But the, if you are waiting twelve months, eighteen months for the case to be uh, finalised, well, I'm afraid you, we're re-traumatising them. Yes. The whole system is re-traumatising them. And we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to really get a handle on this. And what about the way that uh, the CPS and the police will now uh, kind of go? Will there be an investigation that is officially done into, into this if somebody does, if this happens? Well, I mean, during my career, about half, I think half a dozen people took their lives whilst we were prosecuting them. And I, in every single one of them, I look back at all the casework to make sure the right decisions were taken by the right people. Uh, and, you know, it's important to do that. It's also important to protect, or not protect, but to support the people who made the decision. Because I remember how, much, how, how it impacted on me, mm. knowing, thinking, hang on a minute, was I in some way responsible for somebody taking their life? And so it's important to provide support. Yes, absolutely important to understand and uh, find out what happened. I'm hopeful that once this case uh, has been finally discontinued, it has to be formally dropped in court, that the Director of Public Prosecutions and the uh, Chief Prosecutors will open up to us and share with us their, their, um, their decision-making, because I think more the more transparency in anything, mm. as you will appreciate, uh, the more understanding. 
Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. Uh, the front pages of various problems around the country due to Storm Dennis. Front page of the Daily Telegraph, fire crews in Bridge Street, Crickowl in Wales, rescuing residents in a in a dinghy, effectively, because it looks like they're under about 18 inches, two feet of water. Let's talk now to John Hammond from Weather Trending, uh, because, of course, uh, he's the man uh, who was telling me all about this just last week and how uh, terrible the storm season was going to be. Um, very good morning to you, John. It wasn't, in the end, for an awful lot of the country, as bad as the previous weekend. Well, it's funny you say that, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, in terms of rainfall, I mean, there was a lot of rain this weekend. Um, but actually, if you look at it in isolation, the sort of rainfall totals we had, Mike, uh, through this weekend were not that phenomenal. They were high, and in some places, yeah, you had a month's worth of rainfall uh, in 24 hours. But we have that, I'm not saying often, but we have that every so often. The problem was that it was on top of what happened with Kira. So you have to combine the two and the fact that Kira delivered a lot Just of a rain, lot of rain, yeah. Which didn't have time to dry out. And it was the cumulative effect of those two storms which just tipped the balance, sort of metaphorically, and, and led to all that flooding. Because as we've said before, you know, the ground just can't take any more water at the moment. We need several days, if not weeks, to dry out. Yeah. My concern is that although I can't see any one particular storm on the horizon and I can pinpoint on the weather map and say... Well, that's going to hit us next Thursday. Um, there are several developments out in the Atlantic which have the potential to give uh, another dose of wet weather through the next couple of weeks, uh, all of which will just mean that the matter, that matters will remain critical, shall we say, because, because we won't have that opportunity to dry out. And so if we get another inch of rain, that, again, could cause flooding which was more than you'd normally expect with an inch of rain, if you get my gist. Yes, I do. I was driving up from Sussex yesterday. There's an awful lot of water uh, on the road, an awful lot of, of standing water, if you like. And in fact, quite a few of the roads between um, sort of Brighton and London were, were closed due to flooding. And an awful lot of the runoff from the fields is now getting quite bad. Yeah, that's right. And it's, that, I mean, I'm heading that way actually this afternoon, so it'll be interesting to see what, what I find. I'm not expecting things to suddenly dry out like a, like a puddle dries out on a nice spring summer's, or summer's day. Mm. It's just going to sit there. And the, gra the groundwater levels are so, are so high as well. I live in a part of the country, in the Chilterns actually, where, where many valleys, chalk valleys, have been dry for, for a year or two or three because it's been relatively dry for that long. Well, those chalk river valleys are now absolute torrents, which is a measure of how much water there is underneath the surface, Mike. And so we're not going to get out of this quandary, you know, quickly. This is a, this is a slow burner in terms of recovering and getting things safe again for, for, for the country. It's going to take, you know, a week, two, three weeks of dry weather. And I can't see on the weather maps any hope of that because the jet stream is, is really strong as it has been all winter long. Um, there's no sign of any high pressure which is going to sit over us for that period of time. So yes, some dry spells. And this week, for example, is a pretty normal week meteorologically. There'll be some sunshine, there'll be some showers. But what we need is a lot of dry weather for several days and I can't see that on the weather map. Well, maybe what you need is a supercomputer, John, because the Met Office is going to spend 1.2 billion quid, apparently, on a supercomputer to improve weather and climate forecasting. So that's what you need to get your hands on. Indeed, yes. A lot of money. It is a lot of money. I mean, I'm glad they've got that sort of money to spend. But, I mean, are we going to see a few more storms before we see the spring properly kind of kick in? I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, as I say, I mean, I've been, I've been 
hopefully expecting that we're going to see a big blocking high pressure later on in the winter. It just hasn't materialised. You can actually tra- trace the issue up to the top of the atmosphere, Mike, the polar vortex. The uh, polar vortex is a phrase which is used um, wrongly to denote freezing cold weather, which is heading our way. Quite the opposite. When you've got a strong polar vortex at the top of the atmosphere, that tends to drive a strong jet stream. And, and we've had a, a really strong polar vortex all winter. It's still there. And that's still steering a very strong jet stream around the Northern Hemisphere. And when we've got a strong jet stream, that's bad news because that propels deep areas of low pressure from the Atlantic and catapults them across our shores. And, and really not a lot is going to change through the next week or 10 days. So as I said earlier on, though I can't on the weather map pinpoint one particular development and say that's heading our way and that's going to give us storm uh, whatever it's going to be ellen um the potential is there for something to spin up and produce a lot more rain so we'll keep you posted but uh, yeah no sign of any prolonged dry weather on the face online on dab and on the talk radio app talk radio say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, talk radio. Caroline Flack took her own life aged 40 and there's been a huge outpouring of love for her but there are so many people trying to point the finger of blame at the media, at ITV, at the legal system, at the CPS, at the police, social media. Why are we trying to find someone to blame for this terrible, awful, tragic news? Sometimes you just have to accept that terrible things do happen and yes, it might well be uh, that some things need to be looked upon differently. Uh, Perhaps Love Island itself uh, is not one of the greatest ideas anybody ever had for a reality TV show. Uh, I've been speaking to people who knew Caroline Flack. I've been speaking to psychologists, of course, as well. And the picture that is painted of her is of a very vulnerable young woman um, who had done very well in the the television business and who was friends with many journalists and knew exactly what it was uh, that she was into uh, and what she was going to 
probably get out of it. However, she was also clearly a woman uh, who was very, very upset at what had happened between her and her boyfriend, and she was apparently dreading the a trial that was going to be uh, unleashed upon her uh, and the rest of us as well. Uh, we've also talked about the uh, plans to scrap the BBC licence fee. We've got some calls to take on that. We'll take more of those, 03444991000. Right now, though, uh, let us talk to Dan Hodges from The Mail on Sunday, because uh, in the background to all of the Boris Johnson uh, reshuffle business and Sajid Javid leaving the Cabinet, uh, we've still got the battle for the next Labour leader going on. Uh, Emily Thornberry, of course, now dropped out of the race, so we're left with three candidates, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy. Dan, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. It feels to me as though there's this kind of bubble that exists out there, which only includes people who watch the BBC uh, and who vote uh, as members of the Labour Party. It's almost as though it's all going on around us, and if you're not involved in it, you're not really that bothered. Well, I think, I mean, not only is it a, is it a bubble, I mean, it's a never-expanding and seemingly interminable bubble. <laughs> the Labour leadership contest is going to be with us for several, you know, at least a month and a half, a month and a half, yeah. And I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, I mean, my own view is that the Labour leadership contest is exactly what the Labour Party didn't need. It didn't, or certainly the way it's been conducted isn't what the Labour Party needed. I mean, the, you know, Labour suffered by any accounts, a catastrophic defeat back in December. It needed to really sort of step back, take a long, hard look at itself, take a long, hard look about why it lost again, and take a long, hard look about how it can re-engage with the public. And that's clearly not what's happening. The Labour Party is again engaged in a, in a sort of never-ending discussion with itself. And, and it, the, 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 the views of the electorate, the views of the people that Labour is going to need to reach out to if it is ever to gain power again, are just simply not featuring in the Labour leadership debate at the moment. Well, they're really not, and they're getting bogged down in, in what can only be described as kind of the minutiae of Labour Party policy on relatively minor um, sort of... Um, policy planks, if you like, like, for example, safe spaces for women, uh, whether or not trans women are women, all of the stuff that kind of drove them into a dead end of a cul-de-sac in the last election campaign, they don't seem to have learned anything from that. I mean, I think you're being a little... Even with that, I think you're being overly generous. I mean, I don't, I don't think there is even any sort of great detailed sort of, sort of granular analysis of, of policy. Mm. It's just a series of bland statements um, the most sort of profound of which are we have to listen, but then there doesn't seem to be any any listening going no, on. No, then they don't listen. <laughs> no, exactly, but then they don't listen, and or if they do listen, the only people they appear to be interested in listening to is to be is the Labour Party membership, and even that, within that, it's not even the Labour membership generally. All of the candidates are essentially pitching their message to a section of the electorate, mm. the Labour electorate, Labour membership, that basically seem to crave a continuation of some form or other of Corbynism, <coughs> excuse me, be that, you know, hardcore sort of Corbynism of the form being advocated by Rebecca Long-Bailey or... Um, Corbynism with a haircut in 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 the form of Sakir Starmer, mm. and, and, and there is no 
serious analysis of why Labour lost or what Labour has to do to win. No, quite. And also, this is a good time for Labour to be on the attack against Boris Johnson and, and his government, not least because um, people like me, who would generally speaking be in support of Boris Johnson, I've been quite critical of what he's been doing over the last week or so and how some things are unfolding and how, you know, Dominic Cummings is clearly more powerful than anybody thought he was at this particular point. But what you get now is this ridiculous uh, spectacle of Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's Question, standing there like a dead man walking, you know, incapable of, of landing a punch on him. Well, absolutely. I mean, we have the, I mean, as you said, we've got the situation where Dominic Cummings seems to have launched a coup within government. We had Boris's first reshuffle last week in which he couldn't even get through it without losing his chancellor. Um, there have been a lot of sort of concerns within government about the general lack of direction and the sense that since, you know, Boris won the election, got the majority, he doesn't actually really have that much of an idea what what to do with it. We have all these self-inflicted um, sort of, as it were, internal rows breaking out every week. But as you say, the Labour Party isn't in a position to, to capitalise on no. it. I mean, I, mean, I mean, what I would say is, look, we've got a long way to go. I mean, you know, this government's here for four or four or five years. I mean, it's absolutely right that, you know, Labour has to think strategically at the moment rather than sort of running around just trying to sort of knock little lumps off Boris Johnson here or, here or there. But, it's, but as I say, it's not even doing that. I mean, there is no evidence at the moment that the Labour Party is in any way trying to think about what it needs to needs to to reinvent, reinvent itself. And is it somebody else going to drop out, I presume? I mean, Lisa Nandy is a sort of curious figure, it seems to me. I know there are many um, in the sort of more central areas of the Labour Party who think that she might be the answer. But in fact, she's quite left-wing, really. She only looks centrist when next to the Rebecca Longbowley, doesn't she? Well, I think the, the, I think the thing about Lisa's, I mean, you... I mean, you said, you know, some in Labour think she might be the answer. I mean, what's interesting is there are even if there are even a couple of Tories who think she might be the answer, or if not the answer, mm. certainly the person left in the contest that might give uh, the Tories and, 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 and Boris problems. You know, she has got authenticity. She she is somebody who can speak with authority about the problems of, you know, the collapse of Labour's northern wall. I'm not entirely sure I agree that she, she's sort of she, she's particularly left-wing. Certainly she's not left-wing in terms of where she's positioning herself in relation to Rebecca Long-Bailey or increasingly where, where Keir Starmer seems to want the Labour Party to think he's... He, no, but she would have been considered left-wing in, in, in the old Tony Blair days, wouldn't she? Exactly, but I mean, but you know, frankly, I don't know anybody in the Labour Party who thinks that, you know, in, in a month and a half's time, Lisa Mandy is going gonna, is gonna to emerge as as the party leader, we seem to have these two. It, it seems to basically be boiling down to Rebecca Long Bailey or Sir Keir Starmer. And actually, within that, I've got to be honest, I, I can't find many people who don't think Sir Keir Starmer is, is, is going to be the next Labour leader. But then, he, if you ask them what sort of Labour leader he's going to be, you get, you get a lot of blank looks. Yeah, absolutely right. Dan, thanks very much indeed. Dan Hodges there from The Man on Sunday talking about the problem uh, that currently exists in the Labour Party where basically um, the people who are up for the new leadership role are not really likely to change anything anytime soon. And even worse than that, it's not actually going to happen anytime soon either. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Talk Radio with me, Mike Graham, in for Julie Hartley Brewer, powered by The Times, helping you make the most well-informed decisions. Lots of uh, uh, good stories in The Times today, of course. A second storm in a week brings flood, misery and travel chaos. Amazing aerial picture uh, of Crick Howell in southeast Powys, which was completely cut off after the river Usk burst its bank. Storm Dennis brought more than a month's rainfall in 48 hours to parts of Wales, so... Uh, condolences if that's where you are uh, and that's what you're fighting today because it's going to take some time to get all that back to normal. Uh, one of the big stories we've been talking about this morning though uh, is the BBC not least because uh, yesterday in the Sunday Times it was revealed that uh, not only does Boris Johnson uh, and Dominic Cummings and the rest of the Tory government want to look at the BBC, they are actively engaged in a process by which to remove the licence fee, to certainly decriminalise not payment, non-payment of it and also to slim down the organisation to quite a large extent. Let's talk now to Professor Tim Luckhurst, Principal of South College at Durham University and a former BBC executive as well. Tim, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It looks like uh, these are quite dangerous times for the Beeb, doesn't it? Um, certainly the BBC is facing more intense scrutiny from this government than it ever expected and more intense scrutiny than it has experienced from government at any time in recent history. And that will be causing grave concern inside the BBC. It's causing grave concern to all those of us who think that a BBC capable of providing core public services is a very important national institution and one that we should preserve. So, yes, I think the BBC is facing a real crisis. Yeah, it really is. Because I, I think a little bit like, and I, you may not like my, my, my sort of analogy here, but it's a little bit like my arguments that I had with people about the European Union to some extent. The BBC's original charter uh, was a magnificent thing. Some of the things the BBC has done um, in, in, in the past, they should be very rightly proud of. And many of the things they still do, they should be rightly proud of. But they've kind of expanded to beyond the point... Um, of, of what they originally had in mind, don't you think? Yes, I do agree with you that the BBC has expanded in such a way that it now seeks to be all things to all Britons. Yeah. And I would argue that that was not what it was created to be. I think that there is fault on both sides in this argument. The government seems to imagine that it's possible to create a smaller more efficient BBC, which provides excellent news and current affairs on TV, mm. on radio and online, excellent theatre, excellent music, original comedy, etc., without a licence fee. And I think that's preposterous, because those are the very things which commercial financing wouldn't pay for. But equally, the BBC should not be competing on territory which commercial broadcasters and commercial streaming services can provide and do provide very effectively. It should be providing those things which are valuable which we may not always want, but which is a society we desperately need in order to enhance the quality of our public debate and the quality of our arts and culture. The BBC can do that brilliantly with a smaller licence fee and a slightly, as a smaller corporation. And I don't understand why the, B, why the government can't reach a rapid agreement mm. that the BBC should do that. But that takes collaboration from within the BBC yeah. as well. It's got to give up this notion of doing everything for everybody. It yes. simply doesn't need to do that. No, I think you're absolutely right, because I, I imagine there'd be people within the BBC uh, who would see this as very much the thin end of the wedge, and if they cooperate in any way uh, with a kind of hiving off of certain sections of their organisation, that they'll see that as just the beginning, and, and they won't know where it ends. Well, that's why this needs to be a thorough, sensible and reasonable debate, because, of course, 
there are people in the BBC, very reasonably, who worry that any reduction in its scale means the end of the corporation. Mm. And if that were to be the case, that would be a disaster, and they'd be absolutely right. But look, we're talking about this as if it has to be decided tomorrow. The reality is the BBC's licence fee, its royal charter, is guaranteed until 2027. That's longer than this government has been elected to remain in office. <laughs> it's perfectly reasonable to have a sensible conversation about the what the BBC should do, a conversation about what the BBC should not do, and to reach a really sensible consensus, which can then be enshrined in a charter, and I hope guaranteed for a very long time. There is time for that, and there are plenty of people on both sides of the House of Commons who agree that that is the sort of conversation we should be having. And what's the danger here of the political process, I suppose, being accused of, of being responsible for this, i.e., you know, those in the Tory party, those in Downing Street, who really don't like like the BBC and who are using their kind of um, unpopularity, if you like, abroad in terms of what the ordinary people of this country are thinking at the moment, uh, using that as a stick to beat them with. I think there's an element of punishment beating going on at the moment. The BBC probably didn't have a brilliant election. Mm. And one of the reasons I would suggest that it didn't have a brilliant election was that it was slow to understand where the sentiment in favour of Britain leaving the European Union came from, and slow to understand that the majority in favour of leaving was a legitimate majority. Yeah. I'm a re I voted Remain, but I accepted from the very beginning of this process that there was a referendum and my side lost, and that if one is a Democrat, one has to accept that. I think the mindset inside BBC News and Current Affairs was probably a little behind the curve on that, and it didn't give the sort of coverage which in the past has made it world famous for its balance, impartiality and fairness. Now, I don't think the BBC has lost that ability to be one of the world's finest producers of excellent news and current affairs. In fact, I'm convinced that it has a great deal to teach many others about impartiality and fairness. But it must now calm down, recognise that there is a proper debate to be had, and that if it begins to propose a new shape, a shape which makes it really fit the modern, changed multimedia environment, then there are plenty of people in the Conservative Party who are very sensible. John Whittingdale, who's just returned to the Department of Culture, yes. Media and Sport as Minister of State, is an exceptionally well-informed mm. politician. This is not somebody who doesn't understand the role the BBC plays in British society. He has criticised it, but I don't think it's fair to call Mr Whittingdale an enemy of the BBC. No, no I think you're very absolutely right. Minister. Is it time as well for them to rethink some of their programming in the sense of, I mean, I've always been sort of curious about why the BBC produces a show like Strictly. I know it's incredibly successful. I know that they can probably, um, you know, sell it abroad and all of that. But in the end, you know, it costs an awful lot of money to put together. It's star-studded. Uh, it's all about creating a sort of um, um, a culture around a show which can then be, um, you know, turned into a stage extravaganza and a production that tours. I'm not sure that's their job. I'm afraid I agree entirely. I think that the BBC exists to be a benchmark of quality, not to be an organisation which competes, competes almost like a commercial entity mm. with the private sector. Strictly Come Dancing's great entertainment, but it's precisely the kind of show that could be funded by subscription, which could be funded by a commercial broadcaster, which would be made by the commercial sector. What the BBC is brilliant at is nurturing new and original talent, such as the talent that created a comedy like Fleabag, making superb documentary, so it's 
the sort of material that Richard Attenborough has worked on in the past. It is superb at providing eyewitness testimony to global news and reporting accurately online on television and on radio. But does it need to make music radio? I've never understood why Mm. the BBC tramples all over the terrain in which commercial radio stations seek to operate by broadcasting music. That is not something which a public service broadcaster needs to do. Original music, yes, but the pop charts utterly unnecessary. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Professor Tim Luckhurst there uh, who is of course um, now a lecturer and a professor at Durham University, uh, former BBC executive of course as well. But let's talk to Simon uh, who's a first time caller from Bath, wants to talk about the Beeb. Hello Simon. Hello, how are you? Very well indeed, thanks for calling. What can I do for you? Yeah, I just wanted to make a point and you're a great show by the way. Thank I used you. to listen I used to listen to Radio 4 and the BBC but it's so woke, the propaganda, the drip, drip, yeah, it's drip, terrible. every Oh, every talk show, every drama, every talent show is a woke message. But I've completely switched to the commercial offering. And right. You guys in particular, you right. and Julia, are fantastic. And I think it was a real journalistic failing of the BBC during the Brexit coverage, actually, mm. not to look at both sides. But one point, I think you're both missing. Um, you've had some great experts in this morning, but everyone's been saying that there's now advertisements on the BBC. Now, I work in advertising sales, and I used to sell advertising space on the behalf of the BBC products. And I can tell you now that if you were to add up, in advertising, it's time and space, an audience. And if you were to add up all the advertisements on the BBC promoting their own wares, oh, yeah. they spend more money than Tesco, Ford and Coca-Cola combined. Yeah, it drives, me, it drives me insane. I mean, because every time, you know, we're in the radio business here, but we're now moving more into the TV business as well. But every time they do an advert for BBC Sounds before the news, you know, mm-hmm. oh, get so-and-so's podcast. It's like, you know, that is worth, and you're absolutely right, millions to people. Uh, absolutely. And, and the point being is all, all advertising is interrupts by nature, this nature, interrupts your viewing, your listening, your reading. And the BBC advertises itself more than any other mm. brand. It's the number one brand in the country. And the bill for this? Zero. I know. Absolutely nothing. Well, I mean, I that, and that's not, right and that's not to mention the placement of people on the one show, for example. The only thing the one show does is basically promote all the other shows the BBC puts out. It's an editorial, it's editorial um, content, yeah. um, pretending that it's not commercial. And they have so many different avenues to promote as well. It's, it really, it, uh, for me, I'd quite happily get rid of a whole lot of the BBC and say, go commercial, yeah. stand in your own feet, and fight in the real world, get real. And start again. Simon, you're absolutely right. What a great call. Simon, the first time caller to talk radio. Let's go back to the phones and talk some more about the BBC. Peter is in Bridlington uh, in Yorkshire. Hello, Peter. Oh, good morning, Mike. Yes, um, my views on the BBC are that we need to get back to it only providing BBC One and BBC Two. It used to put a a whole range of programmes on that before it expanded dramatically. Do you know how many TV channels the BBC have actually got? It's about five or six, isn't it? It's ten. Ten? Yeah, it's ten. got the worldwide ones as well. Yeah, exactly. BBC Parliament, the the one, two, three and four... Uh, they've got BBC Palm, they've got CBBS, which is a separate channel. They've got BBC Three, which is not meant to be a channel, but still is. Yeah, well, I would just take it back to BBC One and BBC Two, because we've got to remember there are still people in this country who only watch linear TV. Yeah. And they don't have all the catch-up and all these sort of things. And it's the same for people in geographical parts of the UK, where there is probably only one commercial radio station or a a community radio station, and their only other sources of radio news and information is from the BBC. Yes. So until those parts of the country uh, have commercial radio 
um, and, uh, you know, and, and more community radio stations, there is still a role for the BBC mm. as, a, as a, a universal player. But I would take the BBC back to providing what it does or used to do very well, put it on two TV channels, keep it on, on um, the radio channels, and I would drop the licence fee to a fiver a month. Yeah until we've moved to a, a, a place where they can take sponsorship and uh, um, subscription. In fact, I would do that with all their local radio stations. I would move all their local radio stations to a bit in the way that they do it in the States with NPR, where the local station is supported by the local It's an affiliate, yes. And the individuals who want to support that station, so that you've still got a mix of good commercial radio, mm. and you've got this station that the community themselves support. Yes. And maybe it may make those stations better. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, because there's no doubt that uh, you know people do want to listen, and I'm all for having more radio rather than less radio, but what I'm not for is having this kind of you know ridiculous monopoly in this country, which makes it totally impossible for anybody who wants to run a commercial radio station uh, made up of speech radio and maybe a few other bits of uh, music that they want to do. It's, it's, it's a very, very difficult uh, a possibility to make any money. You just can't do it, because the BBC has all the money uh, in that particular thing. But here's another one for you, which I didn't realise, Peter, and it is that basically there is a separate TV channel that provides news for aeroplanes. I got on a plane uh, last year to go to America, switched on, wow. you know, what I thought was their, you know, their offering on, you know, the back of the seat, and they had this completely, it wasn't BBC World, it was a completely separate entity with completely different people Filmed from broadcasting house in London, made just for the for for, for the rate for the for the airline. Unbelievable. It, it is, and, and we're all paying for that through the license fee, and they're then selling things like BBC America, which carries adverts. And and what we need to do is get the BBC back to what it was doing well, limit it to good quality news, and in fact, to make it balanced, I would almost have a committee made up of people from various newspapers of The Economist, The, the Mail, uh, The Mirror, whatever, to oversee the, 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 the balance they say they have, they keep to. You're absolutely right. Thank you, Peter, for your call. Let's talk to Craig, who's in Oxford. He wants to have his say as well. Hello, Craig. Morning, Mike. Hi. Very well, sir. What can I do for you? Yeah, I, I, I pretty much I'm completely fed up of the BBC. It's a, as you said, it's effectively a television tax that's compulsory to, to most people. Yeah. Their, their coverage of, lately and last year's has been completely lopsided and, and impartial. Now, I think we'd all agree that the BBC, when it first came out, when television was in its infancy, was brilliant. It served a brilliant purpose and, and was, was, you know, it laid the foundations for where we are today. However, just like the cassette tape was first in portable audio, it's obsolete now. It serves no real function. I mean, I pay God knows how much it is a year mm. to watch a bit of Doctor Who and Match of the Day. <laughs> Still watching Doctor Who? I can't believe it. I, start, I, I well, fell upon it by accident the other day. It was awful. Yeah. It's, it's more like, you know when you start a bad film and you're like, well, I'm committed now? <laughs> you just kind of yeah. want to see how it ends. No, I, I, I can't. I just couldn't watch it. It's just ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah. It's, I mean, woke Doctor Who is not for me. You know? Yes, yeah, it has started. Some of the stories have started going a bit like that, unfortunately. And it's the same with most of most of what they offer. Um, anything that's any good, like I say, will be picked up commercially by something else, and the rest of it is just drool. That's just 
you know, force-fed on you, that you're, you're being forced into funding. Um, and, and we shouldn't have to put up with it anymore. I mean, I've got a feeling they'll lose the uh, match of the day um, if the Premier League goes for their subscription service model because they'll just do the, the um, analysis show themselves. Yeah. So after that goes, it's, it's you know, what do you do? Well, exactly. I mean, I've even stopped watching Match of the Day, to be honest, because, you know, it's one of those things that you can see so many clips now throughout the course of the day. You can see most of the goals on Twitter before you've even got there. So in the end, it's not even that interesting to watch a bloke who's getting well overpaid uh, to, to do links between football matches and who doesn't have an opinion. Craig, thanks very much indeed. Craig in Oxford there talking about why he doesn't think the BBC will survive. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 